3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You're in the studio with myself, Lauren, and Anya. Mm. We are sorely missing Ayan and George. Um, And apologies for the hysteria. We are both (laughs) absolutely delirious at this time of year. Yeah, it's the end of the year. Underslept, overworked. Overworked, Oh, my goodness. A bit dehydrated as well. Dehydrated. That's me. That's mm. my fault. I drink about two liters of water. All right. Day. Well, pretty. It's like it's so glorious. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, we so do have a big show today, though. We do. We really do. Mm. We um. I'm really excited about this interview that Ayan has lined up mm. with Laura from. Oh goodness. Now I've lost the. Uh, I've lost what the. Ah, Friends for Good, mm. talking about loneliness and um, social isolation. Yeah, mm. in yeah. the holiday period. Hmm. Grim. But important. I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, and Mariki Onus from Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance will be joining us later in the program to mm. discuss um, constitutional recognition and how it's a consent is- issue um, and also in the context, I guess, of the Labour National Conference um, in which they've committed to that as part of their reconciliation, reconciliation action plan, goodness mm. me. Yeah. Mm. And we've got Stephen Caruana um, joining us at 7.30 to talk about OPCAT, which is the Ooh. optional protocol against torture and um, uh, what's the full term? It's the optional protocol for the Convention Against Torture. Against torture. <laughs> oh, oh, no. goodness. Ooh. Oh, goodness. Um, it really is like it's that. that kind of morning, isn't it? Oh. So we thought maybe we would kick it off um, mm. by talking a little about this Labor National Conference. Um because it sort of spent the day yesterday unfolding um, in terms of promises and new policies and honestly some of the worst uh, quote-unquote left-wing or progressive Mm -hmm. political behaviour I think we've seen in living memory. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Labour caucus voted down... um, voted down an amendment to try and get a Charter of Human Rights. Mm. Um, as part of their ongoing policy, they voted to keep offshore processing um, and keep open Manus and Nauru. Mm. And they also rejected a policy proposal to criminalise ex-gay conversion therapy. Yeah. We were just having a, a moment before wondering how queer people in the ALP, um, mm. you know, how how do you feel right now? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they've also, uh, we'll, we'll finish up the list of um, bad things that they did before we move on to some that have, have received some praise. Um, the final thing that we did want to highlight is that they've promised a quote-unquote urgent review mm. um, of New Start mm. within 18 months. And as somebody um, rightly pointed out on Twitter, how urgent can it be if it's A, a review, um, and B, within 18 months. Mm. Um, when we've got the Greens, particularly Rachel Seawork, calling for a $75 increase to the new start allowance immediately. Um, and we know that there are, you know, 16 job seekers for every available job in this country and that new start is actually below the poverty line. So, mm. Labor, what are you doing? Yeah, it's just really hard that um, I guess they're running on this sort of promise that they're slightly better. Mm. Oh, as I think, what did I say? Oh, no, I can't say that on air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to reframe that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Mm. Yeah. No, exactly. And look, they've done, there's some things that they, they sort of um, decided would be their policy moving forward. You know, they're going to give a lot of money to mm. the United Nations Human um, High Commissioner of Refugees mm-hmm. for regional processing, yeah. which is great. Mm. Regional processing is really important. Um, and they have said that they will scrap the CDP, the Community Development Program, mm. which is a really racialized, targeted, horrific, mm. um, you know, economic kind of policy. Um, but, mm. like, what are you here for? It'd be nice if someone grew a spine once in a while. Mm. And it's not you or me that needs to. No, I'm just going to add you. Bill Shorten, grow a spine. Mm. Like, it's just... Uh, 
Yeah. And then, oh, of course, then Wayne Swan and Bill Shorten being um, annoyed or like affronted that there were protesters. Mm, I saw that. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I mean... How dare you stand up for what you believe in? Well, I've, you know, the Labour Party is founded on workers' movements Mm. whose only method of power in a lot of places are protest. Mm. Um, I think yesterday was just a really clear, like, picture-perfect Bill Shorten staring down that Adani protester, how far they've strayed from, you know, what they... From the roots, yeah. Yeah, what Mm. they intended to be. Mm. (sighs) All right, well, I've got my rage out. How are you feeling? (laughs) Should we play a song? That. Yeah, let's play a song. Yeah. Um, I'm going to play the song that you suggested because it's awesome. Mm. And this one goes out to our girl, George. I know this is a song that you love very much. Um, slight language warning. It's pretty early, so sorry. Enjoy. This is Tiana Taylor with Rose in Harlem. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Chronically Chilled, a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You just heard two great songs that we love very much. Um, Tiana Taylor, A Rose in Harlem, and then Sid um, from her album Finn. And what did we play? I think we played No. So now we're going to hear um, an excerpt from a podcast that is one of Ayan's saves. We're really doing the greatest hits of people who <laughs> can't be with us today. Um so the podcast is called Call Your Girlfriend, and it's a podcast for, um, I think it's like long-distance besties is the idea, which is really cute. I have a few of those, and it's nice to know that um, there's a podcast geared towards that. Uh, and this episode is about white fragility, which is something that we've sort of touched on on um, Tuesday Breakfast in the past, um, but it really blew up um, in Australia earlier this year with the book by a woman called Robin D'Angelo and she did a talk at the Wheeler Centre with Jack Lattimore recently. Um, so we're just going to play about 10 minutes of this because um, I think it's really important. And if you are um, listening and you're a white woman and you um, consider yourself a feminist, pay attention. This is for you. Robin D'Angelo, who is an academic a tenured professor of multicultural education. Who knew that was a position at Westfield State University? She comes from a background of doing a lot of diversity and inclusion trainings in corporate environments. And she noticed this thing that would happen when she talked about race with a group of, let's say, like 99 out of 100 employees or like 96 out of 100 employees being white. The reactions they had when she tried to talk about the realities of the ways that race has shaped our society and about racism as a force and about whiteness as a thing, they would just freak out. Like this defensive behavior that I um, I know is everyone who is listening to this podcast who is a person of color is like, yes, duh, obviously. Ooh. I don't know if that's your reaction to that. You know, some of my best friends are white. <laughs> my doctor is a white person. My banker is a white person. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, that's so interesting. You're like, you're right about that. And it's something that like, it took me a really long time to understand what was going on with that. And I realized that it's because, oh, people who are not white actually talk about race all the time. It's like we're racialized people. And so I never realized that like that was not true for people who are not um, of beautiful colors. So it had just like never occurred to me. Right. The melanin deficient are often 
not culturally and socially pushed to think that this is an idea that they have to have any kind of feeling about whatsoever. Like this is part of what her work is about. But anyway, so this react, these reactions, these like defensive and angry reactions that she was noticing over and over, she spent a lot of time thinking about like, where does this come from? And eventually wrote an academic paper that later became a book terming it white fragility. It also seemed totally misrepresentative to have this conversation about white fragility without having an equally important conversation about the ways that white fragility is experienced by people of color and in particular women of color. Are you familiar with Rachel Cargill? Yeah, this is her her story and and the parallel to like talking to Robin D'Angelo is really fascinating. Yeah, so Rachel, I became acquainted with her work on Instagram, as I think a lot of people have. She uh, is at rachel.cargle, C-A-R-G-L-E, and she's an activist and a writer currently attending Columbia University. And recently, after the murder of Nia Wilson, which do a Google if you do not know the name Nia Wilson, she noticed that she was not seeing a lot of conversation about this woman and about the injustice of her death on accounts associated with prominent feminist voices who happened to be white. And so she ran a campaign that was like, hey, maybe what you could do is ask your white feminist fave to talk about this woman and to talk about this issue. And like, let's see if we can't bring some more attention to it. And as a result, a few people got very, very angry. Um, and Which people got angry? Well, and- you know, Good question. <laughs> Who got angry? You know, they were white women. They were white feminist identified women. You know, fragile and angry. What a conundrum. Listen, and so so she had a lot to say about not only this experience. Um, I hope I did not, you know, give away the punchline, though. But like, look, sounds like you might have been able to guess the punchline anyway. <laughs> so Robin D'Angelo is kind of she is this academic who's looking at like a big phenomenon and writing in pretty pretty broad terms, although she does talk about her personal experience in the book. And Rachel is a person who's experiencing white fragility in a violent and direct way and is experiencing it in real time online. And I think that talking to her as someone whose work is rooted in social media is particularly interesting on this question because it is such a like real time and public facing way to do this work. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. For people who are unfamiliar with your work, maybe you can talk a little bit about who you are and what you do by way of introduction. Yeah. My name is Rachel Cargill. I'm currently living in New York City and attending Columbia University. A lot of the work that I do is public on social media. I don't know, whatever millennial social media life is. <laughs> and um, But my a lot of my work is public, and it's at the intersection of race and feminism. So I basically just facilitate a lot of intellectual discourse and really meaningful conversations around what it's like to be a black woman and what it's like to be a black woman feminist and just how feminism works and looks through the lens of race. Yeah, I want to talk about maybe a specific example of that experience that you're talking about with being a facilitator and and a leader and someone who's like really advancing that conversation and your perspective on Instagram in particular. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened after Nia Wilson was murdered and you put out a call for more attention and frankly, like outrage as a, as a result of that. Yeah. So after the murder of Nia Wilson, I realized that a lot of my feminists, friends and people who call themselves leaders of the feminist movement on their various platforms weren't really talking about it, even though it was a tragic death of a woman in such a vicious way. And so I kind of just reposted something that I saw that put a call out asking, you know, where's your favorite white feminist and how come she's not talking about Mia Wilson? And a lot of my followers began to tag a lot of the women who they were like, yeah, why haven't I heard from you? Where are you at on this conversation? And it was incredibly interesting because there were people who were seeing it and they were just as surprised and outraged, not just at her murder, but also at the way that the media wasn't covering what had happened, even though it was so specifically um, race-based and so specifically tragic that such a young woman would have been, literally, she was just stabbed on a 
on a like Metro platform. And so a lot of them who were tagged stood up and said, yes, I hadn't heard of this. I'm both outraged that media isn't covering it, but I'm also outraged um, and demanding justice alongside you. But then there were also a lot in a few cases in particular where there was tons of defensiveness and tons of just being offended that they had been called out in such a way where we were questioning what their stance was in feminism and whether they were really here for all women or they were there for women who looked and experienced life like them, regardless of how much they claimed inclusivity, they claimed intersectionality. We were calling them to show that in that moment. And there was a lot of very interesting, interesting backlash at the way that they were called into this conversation. Yeah. And and maybe you could talk a little bit about what that looks like, because I think that an experience that white women who are talking about politics online have maybe had is like a man saying, "Ugh, like, how dare you say that this is something that I need to care about or like have a defensive reaction towards them. And I think that often it can be hard to recognize a like what that behavior looks like and the effect that that has. And so maybe without without naming names, but just kind of describing the general tenor of like the the sort of more backlashy responses. Could you talk about like what what you were hit with in response and, and what effect that had on you and how you felt? Yeah, I think that what you're referring to and it's so interesting as a black feminist activist, I've learned, unfortunately, that a lot of the white women that I talk to refuse to really accept what's happening in terms of race and feminism, unless it's put in the light of the patriarchy and Mm. men and how they've been treated by men. It seems to be so hard for white women to accept that they are both oppressed by the patriarchy, just as all women are, but they're also oppressors to black women and black communities as a part of a country that was built on white supremacy. And so there's a lot of frustration and confusion and like just this internal grappling that white women are dealing with right now as they're being called to recognize these things. And it really showed up in this instance where they had to realize that they might have been part of the problem and us black women were calling them to task in order to really display the intersectional feminism or the social justice that they claimed they were a part of. So a lot of the things that show up in these instances are white women often come and say, well, you know, centering themselves in what it is they've done for black people or why they did what they did or why they, um, it, it, it's like a constant use of the word I and me and my concerning their feelings above all else. That's part of the conversation. And one thing that I always use to combat this and really bring it to light is that when you hurt someone and you step on someone's foot, you don't say, and and they say, ouch, you don't say, oh, I didn't mean to hurt you, so stop whining about it. You you don't do that. You say, oh, wow, I'm so sorry I hurt you. You don't explain why you might have hurt them. You don't explain about something in your past that led you to this point of hurting them. You literally make sure they're okay. You say sorry and you move on. And that's something that I read. That was the best example that I can always give around that. There was also a lot of white saviorism, which is often when white people feel like anything we've ever done for a black person should be enough. And so in the instance where we were calling people out, there was this very bizarre listing of a resume of everything they've ever done for a black person. So that should dismiss them from having to do anything now. Everything from I'm nice to the black kids in my neighborhood to I've donated money to the local black college, things like that to where it's like, don't you all know how much I've done for you? And it's just very dismissive of the dynamics of the black experience to where if we truly are intersectional, we're continuously ensuring that we're all safe and that justice is served for all of us. People ensure that they bring up love in order to dismiss or not have to deal with a lot of the very real, hard, muddy things that are happening. They'd rather dismiss it with, um, you know, telling us, why don't we just love? Why don't we just have peace? Stop being so divisive. When the truth is, we can't ignore things. They're not going to go away just because we ignore them. They're not going to turn into this cloud of love if we just say the word love enough when talking about incredibly hard things like racism. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! 
Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We're going to play a song now, it's called Shook and it's by one of my favourite artists, Raja Kumari. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with myself, Anya, and Lauren. Next, we're going to be talking to Stephen Caruana. Stephen Caruana is based in Sydney and is a former Immigration Detention Inspector and OPCAT Implementation Manager for the Office of the Commonwealth Ombudsman. Prior to working in inspections, Stephen worked across various immigration detention centres in the Nauru Regional Processing Centre as a Senior Case Manager and later Assistant Director for the then Department of Immigration and Border Protection for eight years. Last year, Stephen was awarded a Winston Churchill Memorial Trust Fellowship to explore OPCAT implementation experiences and best practices abroad, visiting 11 countries and publishing his findings and recommendations in July of this year. Stephen is also an expert member of the External Prison Oversight and Human Rights Network with the International Corrections and Prisons Association and consults with NGOs, namely in Ireland and Canada, to promote OPCAT ratification. Thank you so much for joining us today, Stephen. No worries. Thanks for having me. Let's start by talking about what the OPCAT Treaty is. What is it? Sure. So OPCAT is short for the Optional Protocol to the Convention Against Torture. And basically what that treaty does is impose an obligation on states that have ratified it to allow for periodic visits from the United Nations Subcommittee for the Prevention of Torture. Mm -hmm. And what that is is an expert group that is able to visit a country and inspect all places where people are detained or deprived of their liberty Mm -hmm. and then report back to the country their findings and recommendations. Now, those visits um, are really only able to occur every five to ten years because of limited resources. So what the value of the OPCAT is, is in its second obligation, mm-hmm. and that is to create um, a national preventive mechanism, or NPM. Mm-hmm. And the NPM is the domestic visiting body charged with undertaking the regular preventive visits to all places of detention in Australia. Mm-hmm. And its aim is to ensure violations of human rights are prevented from occurring. Um, And it does this through constructive dialogue with detainees, with detaining agencies, civil society and government Mm -hmm. um, to determine what the current and potential issues are and to recommend practical solutions to those concerns. Mm. Um, The NPM also has an advisory function. So it's able to comment on legislation and put forward proposals to government. Mm-hmm. as well as an educative function. Um, so it's uh, tasked with ensuring awareness is raised on mistreatment and torture issues and um, assisting detaining agencies to comply with their human rights obligations. Mm. And Australia ratified the OPCAT in December 2017, so about, about a year ago. Um, what has happened since then and what can we expect from this point on? Okay. <clears throat> So at the time that Australia ratified the OPCAT last year, as you said, Mm -hmm. um, they made an announcement that um, the NPM wouldn't be established for three years and they are able to do that through the provisions of the OPCAT. Mm -hmm. And the reason for doing that was to allow for the federal government and the state and territory governments to, uh, I guess, best decide how to implement the OPCAT, so whether it needs to be legislated what are the resources needed, uh, where are the areas of detention and what's the existing oversight in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's still an ongoing um, issue. But in terms of what's practically happened since ratification, so first of all, the uh, Commonwealth Ombudsman has been designated um, as the coordinator of the Australian NPM. Mm-hmm. 
So the approach that Australia is going to take is um, have a multi-bodied MPM, so have um, a federal-level MPM as well as state and territory-based MPMs. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I said, the Commonwealth Ombudsman is responsible for coordinating it and also responsible for the inspection of immigration detention, military detention, and AFP custody cells. Um, in terms of what the states and territories have done, so in Northern Territory and the ACT, um, they've both passed bills to allow for the visits from the subcommittee for the prevention of torture. Mm. Um, the Australian Human Rights Commission has conducted two rounds of civil society consultations and is looking to publish a report in early 2019, which will put forward recommendations and the view of civil society in terms of how the NPM should operate. Mm. Um, the Commonwealth Ombudsman is also looking at the existing um, oversight mechanisms in Australia and whether they comply with the uh, provisions of the OPCAT. And we'll also be looking to um, produce a public report in 2019. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, and like you mentioned, there are all these external oversight mechanisms um, for places of detention that already exist in Australia in each state and territory. How can, uh, I guess, a national NPM uh, or that sort of a body add value to that space? Yeah, definitely. So there is external oversight mechanisms in various places in Australia, mm-hmm. but it's not uh, in all places. So, for instance, in Queensland, um Prisons and youth detention are oversighted by um, the chief inspector, which is not an external oversight mechanism, but Mm. it's an internal oversight mechanism. And um, just to give you an idea of the importance of external oversight mechanisms, Mm. um, just last Friday, the Queensland Crime and Corruption Commission uh, produced a report which looked at corruption risk in corrections. And it looked at the uh, chief inspector within that report and um, basically stated that that model doesn't rec- uh, doesn't meet recognised international standards for independence, um, that there are gaps in oversight, mm. um, that there is a lack of transparency, that there's no public reports and that the frequency of visits is not enough and that the pro- it's process-driven rather than focused on outcomes. So what the OPCAT does is basically look to enhance and strengthen existing oversight, um, but also provide an opportunity for oversight agencies to work together in terms of sharing best practice and developing um, inspecting principles so they can learn from each other, but not only that, but from NPMs across the world. Mm. Um, And also, I think what's really interesting about it is that it it provides an opportunity for potential cross-jurisdictional work. So, for instance, um, let's just say the NPM as a whole wanted to look at the experience of women in detention. Mm -hmm. It could look at that across the state, uh, states and territories, rather than just singularly within a state. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge potential for for an evidence base um, to be created to look at um, really specific issues such as solitary confinement, etc. But I think for me personally, what I really like about the NPM and the OPCAT is that its preventive focus is about looking holistically at a place of detention. So... It's about getting the views, not just of those detained, but the people who work there, the people who visit there, and the wider community, mm-hmm. and then making suggestions that are practical. So um, if I can give an example, when I was working in immigration detention, mm-hmm. so I was there for about eight years, and not once was I asked by an oversight agency what I thought was going wrong in, a, in detention or what I thought could be done better. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really valuable because... If you want to change things in detention, you need to get the input of the people who not only are detained there, but the people that work there. Mm-hmm. And I guess an extra set of eyes is never 
never a bad thing, given what's happening no, with Dondale and, and Queensland, like you mentioned. Um, yeah. And you also mentioned in your article in The Stringer, which is a great article, by the way, that the OPCAP doesn't explicitly state what places of detention and deprivation of liberty actually refer to. Can you expand on that? Are there any benefits with this open-ended interpretation? Yeah. Um, so... Basically, yeah, it, it doesn't state what is detention and what is deprivation of liberty, and that's that's done purposefully. Mm-hmm. So the subcommittee has suggested that there needs to be um, as extensive an interpretation as possible to maximise the impact of an NPM, mm-hmm. and that's really important because um, it allows you to see places that aren't traditionally viewed as detention um, as trouble spots. So, for instance, not that long ago, we saw um, issues in aged care facilities. Mm. And whilst you wouldn't traditionally think of aged care as a place of detention, it's obvious that there are instances where um, detention does occur. And that could be from not allowing someone who's frail to leave their bed. Um, And, you know, the NPM has the potential to deal with those issues by being able to provide a framework of inspections that is as rigorous as you would expect in a correctional facility or immigration detention. And elsewhere, like in the UK, for instance, aged care is regularly looked at um, by the NPM. And that um, has an educative value in that it raises awareness that detention isn't just what you normally think it is. It can occur in hospitals, it, occur, it can occur in schools, yeah. and that's happened here in Australia as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and with the Royal Commission coming up, and yeah, I think that would be really important information Definitely. for them as well. Yeah, um, we can t- keep talking about this, but unfortunately we're out of time. But thank you so much for joining us today, Stephen. And um, yeah, we'd like to talk to you some other time about this as well. Anytime. Thank you very much. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You just had a great interview. Mm, that was Stephen Caruana talking about um, the OPCAT and how we can use um, the ratification of that to prevent abuse in places of detention, mm. including places like aged care homes, which really blew my mind. That is cool. Mm. Um, who knew international law was useful? Well, we, we did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> it was a joke. Uh, okay. um, so we're delighted to be joined on the phone now by Laura Ruhan, who is the founder of an organisation named Friends for Good. Laura, thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No worries. Sorry about the uh, tech issues that caused this to be slightly later than first planned. M- modern life, hey? Modern life. Indeed. Speaking of modern life, loneliness, social isolation. Uh, let's talk about that. So Friends for Good is an organisation that supports people who are experiencing those things. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your organisation before we get into it? Sure. So we're a Melbourne-based charity. Um, we also run a national service. Um, and Friends for Good was um, established with my co-founder, Patricia Laurier, and I. We both have um, experience working in the community sector from aged care, disability, uh, community legal centres, neighbourhood houses... And something that was a persistent theme no matter where we were was that people were lonely. Mm. So it's 2018 and I've got this funny phone in my pocket that's more like a computer that makes phone calls. Um, And people were literally just saying, I don't have anyone to talk to. Mm. I don't don't know what to do. So we thought, you know, maybe we could do something about this. So we recognised there were gaps in the services that exist for all members of the community. 
Um, and we started Friends for Good. So we want to reduce loneliness. Uh, we do community education and provide services that um, address gaps that are out there. Um, because we do know that loneliness doesn't discriminate. It affects anybody of any age. Um, and it's quite interesting, some of the reflections in um, sort of modern life and what is it about the way we live now? Is it any different from um, the way we used to live? Mm. And, and why are we a bit disconnected? Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think it is? Because that's a really common refrain, isn't it, that the society that we live in now um, causes loneliness in, in almost epidemic rates more than it did in the past. So what's changed? Yeah, look, absolutely. And it's interesting that you mentioned the epidemic as well, because um, research from North America and the UK and certainly uh, local research has loneliness as an emerging health crisis. Um, greater than obesity as well. Oh, so the, the effects impact on your physical health. Um, it's as detrimental as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So we know yeah. the harms of smoking. But in terms of the modern age, I think technology, um, social media, for example, is like a magnifying glass. It's, and it's a tool as well. So if we're already feeling a little bit disconnected um, and then we kind of look on Instagram or something like that and we see, oh, these people leading glamorous lives with all these friends, it's like applying a magnifying glass to something mm. that we think is not quite where we want it to be. It's always been a part of our society and, and human nature as well. Some of us like to be um, alone, but when we're talking about loneliness, we're really talking about not really having a choice. So people reflecting and saying, I don't have the depth of friendship that I would like or connection that I would like um, and what we can do about that. So technology is an interesting one. Um, and I think we sort of get a bit too busy. Well, that's yeah. what we tell ourselves. We're all busy rushing around doing all sorts of things. Um, but just stopping and saying hello to someone, having a conversation, uh, and that's where some of our services come into play as well. Mm. I really love that magnifying glass analogy. I think that's so true. You can just be feeling a little bit off and jump on Facebook or something and all of a sudden it's, um, yeah. And so in terms of, you know, you said earlier that loneliness doesn't discriminate, um, mm-hmm. But are there certain groups that you think um, or that you've seen that are at particular risk of isolation? Um, look, a large part of my background has been working with um, older people and people with disabilities. And they're two uh, cohorts in our community that have a lot going on, like we all do. So if you think about it, you're an older person. Um, as we age, our social opportunities change as well. So you may no longer be driving, so you might have a grandparent or a family friend in this situation. So getting out to a social appointment becomes really challenging. Mm. And socialising isn't really, it's not at all like riding a bike. You do forget how to do it. If you haven't spoken to anyone all day, I'm a real chatter. And if I, there are many times where I might be unwell and I'm home all day on my own and my wife gets home and I just blurt out everything because I've had no connection and it's really overwhelming and I'm not communicating very well and it's like okay what was that about yeah you feel Um, a little bit unhinged in that moment don't I do the same thing just blurt it all out yeah so our ability to communicate changes as well Mm. so it's um it's really challenging and so if you're an older person maybe your social opportunities are changing as well um some people with disabilities uh, need support to access other services as well so we certainly know a lot of issues around funding um, culturally appropriate services, um, you know, we talk about, you know, our agency and decision making, but if you're also reliant on somebody to support you to do some of those things and they don't quite understand your social needs and wants as a person, let alone as a person with a disability, um, you, you know, there's a potential there as well to, to have greater disconnection. Um, you know, certainly the LGBTIQA plus community. So there's many groups in our communities that experience loneliness differently. Um, for the LGBTIQA plus community, there's a whole other series of factors going on there as well um, in terms of your family of origin and what support that you may have. Um, we also know that there's you know, an increase in um, mental health issues um, and particularly for young regional people as well. So almost every element of community has something going on that you know, the, the, is creating barriers to, to getting greater connection and support. Yeah. And it's interesting, while you were just talking, I was thinking, you know, you're right in that everybody has stuff going on that we don't necessarily know about that that might make them more prone to feeling socially isolated, especially around these times of year. Um, yeah. And we're also in that really weird period where everybody just wants to be looking their best all the time, you know, living their best life on Facebook and Instagram and stuff. And so maybe um, 
maybe we need to be a little more uh, just cognizant. Maybe we need to be asking more, asking our friends. Yeah, and I think we also need to really think micro as well. Mm. So think really, really small. Um, I finish work early one or two days a week and I catch public transport to work and I know the local crossing guards. I know their names um, because they work at the traffic lights. There's a primary school near where I live. Um, I stop and have a chat. I know that Theo's going to visit his family in Perth over Christmas. <laughs> I see him at the local market. So, you know, and that's part of my nature too, that sort of chatty, smiley person. And I'm not always like that though. Um, but, you know, just saying hello to people, stopping and having a chat, yeah. helps me feel a bit more secure in my community. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I noticed things. He was away for a few months. And I was like, oh, I hope he's okay. Mm. Um, and just that sort of checking in as well, whether it be to, to a neighbour or just saying hello to someone in the street. We don't even get the postman or posty come every day anymore. Um, for some people, that's the only person that they might see. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty challenging. So one of our services, uh, we have Friendline, which is an, a national conversation service. Uh, we have a 1-800 number, so on a Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday evening between 6 and 8, you can telephone 1-800-424-287 and just have a friendly conversation. That's Put awesome. the kettle on, have a cuppa and just have a chat. Yeah, that's so nice. Um, and so that's really beautiful, those kinds of services. Um, but maybe if we bring it a bit closer to home, say we've got um, friends or a relative who's experiencing that social isolation, um, especially, like I said, around this time of year. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any practical tips for our listeners in terms of how they can best support people? And I, I think especially we don't want to make people feel um, ashamed of feeling lonely or anything like that because that is something that I think a lot of people struggle with. Yeah, look, there's a huge stigma around it as well. Mm. Um, it's a natural part of life. We all feel lonely from time to time. Um at least 98% of the population will admit to feeling lonely at some point in their life, so that's that's pretty huge. Um, so it's safe to say that it's something we've all experienced from time to time. So sometimes it can be really situational as well. So the best thing to do is to focus on those networks that you already network, existing networks that you do have. So you might just give someone a phone call and just mm -hmm. say hello. Over the phone can be a non-confrontational way of sort of checking in with them. Um, just having a conversation. Oh, I just thought I'd bring you up and, and have a chat. So actually reach out to that person, yeah. uh, make that connection and reaffirm those connections as well. And then dependent on that relationship too, you might suggest that um, they call a service like ours mm. and just, oh, we'd like to go out for a coffee tomorrow afternoon. Just just have a coffee or um, I might come around or you know, invite them over too because, you know, it's um, an expensive time of year for many as well. Yeah. So, you know, if you're thinking about some of those issues too, um, and you want to remove those barriers for people, just say, oh, come around on Saturday for a cuppa or, look, I'm just going for a walk up to the market. Do you want to come for a walk with me? It doesn't have to be anything extravagant. Um, it's just about actually having the time to make that and renew a connection with someone. Yeah. Send them a Christmas card or a postcard. Um, we're going to be introducing a letter writing service. Oh, lovely. So connecting people. Um, I kind of want to receive a letter myself because all I ever get <laughs> in the mail are bills and um, <laughs> real estate stuff. Like, yep. yeah, so yep. it would actually be nice to sit down, take some time um, and write to somebody. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's going to be a, a really great service um, and we've had a lot of interest in that as well. So yeah, reach awesome. out to people around you, just say hello. You know, make those connections again. Invite someone around for a cup, but just something where you can spend a little bit of time together just to renew that connection that you have as well. So then they start to slowly feel supported. And it's something that you need to do over time generally as well. Yeah. And so how can listeners get involved with Friends for Good and all of the awesome work that you guys are doing? So they can visit our website, mm -hmm. so friendsforgood.org.au. We're completely um, reliant on donations as a charity and we're 100% volunteer-driven. Um, so you can have a look at our blog, some of our current initiatives, uh, several avenues to get involved with volunteering or just, you know, spruiking our service, as it were. Um, and I would encourage anyone to have a chat. We have people of all ages and backgrounds um, give us a call. Sometimes people just say, oh, I just had a terrible day at work and I just wanted to talk about something else. Um, through all sorts of things, we have a lot of regular callers, which is great. Um, but, yeah, give us a call on 1-800-424-287. 
Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. For us, it's important that it's an evening service because mm-hmm. most things close at 5 o'clock. Yeah. Um, but I don't know about you, but I can't necessarily shut off my feelings or ideas or brain at 5 o'clock. I wish um, that was the case, yeah. Yeah, that would be nice to press <laughs> pause, wouldn't it? Mm. So, um, yeah, definitely give us a call. Um, have a look at us on Facebook. We're all across social media as well, so we like to share a lot of information uh, and encourage people to connect with us as well. Um, as we said, around volunteering opportunities, talking about our services as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Laura, and all the best. I hope you enjoy your Christmas break. Uh, Likewise to you. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Take care. Bye. And now we're going to a song. Um, Once again, all I've been doing today is dedicating things to George, but um, we will be going to a song. Just to recap, that was Laura Ruhan, who's the founder of Friends for Good, a Melbourne-based charity um, working to combat loneliness and social isolation in our communities. And let us hear now from... Which song did you pick? (laughs) Well, I was going to dedicate a song to George, but then I think I'm just going to dedicate it to myself. Hmm. Um, That's the Christmas spirit. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to play Thousand Years by Mojo Juju. Enjoy. That song. Every time. Every time. Is that the one we sobbed to? At the gig? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you know when you, uh, well, listeners, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you know when you're sobbing at a concert and all of your friends surround you, um, it's really, I don't want to say it's embarrassing, showing emotion in public is not embarrassing, but it was a bit embarrassing. I think it was okay because everyone was sobbing. Yeah, you were definitely sobbing. Mm. And yeah, it wasn't a very pretty sight, but who cares? No, you know, it's a very moving song. Mm. It was also my birthday, and so there mm. was that sadness about turning a... Yeah, older. You need to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I am sorry. You can't say these things on air. I can, because I didn't swear. Mm, that's um, true. But some of us are much closer to 30 than others in this room. I'm really looking forward to turning 30. You know what? Same. Mm. Like, honest, now. Mm. Six months ago, perhaps not. Mm. Yeah. I think the process to getting to 30 would be a bit tough, but... I mean, you literally have years. Yeah, but you know, yeah, yeah. Speaking of years, how was how was twenty eighteen oh for you? No, we were just talking about this while yeah. Mojo was playing. Listeners, <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling very reflective this morning. But seriously, who among us has not had the worst year? Mm. But also, in some ways, like the be- so, some of the things that have happened this year have just been phenomenally good in mm. my life. So mm. I really can't say it's been the worst year ever. I don't know. How are you feeling? Reflecting? Yeah, it's been very up and down. Mm. I think we have a tendency to think about, you know, the worst things that's happened to us to us in, in the past or, you know, in this year or whatever, and then let that sort of set the tone for the year. Mm. And so, I, you know, I was going around being like, 2018 was the worst and I had all these um, problems and mm. I had all these heartbreaks and, you know. But then I sat down and I thought, no, nah, I'm going to actually list down what happened. <gasps> I did this the other day in 2018. As well. Yeah, and I was listing down all these things about, like, you know, how I got a new job, how I went to the Sisters Inside conference. Yeah, how we escaped the clutches of a bullying workplace together. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'm looking at that as a positive. <laughs> how, um, you know, how we did so many things for Rights Advocacy Project. Yeah. Like, you know, like we made great we radio. Report. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I joined 3CR, became part of the and 3CR family. And thank God family. you did. My <laughs> life would be incomplete without you. Oh, stop it. Oh. And just, yeah, and made so many new friends who I absolutely love to death. And as I was writing all this down and I was just like, you know. Yeah. 2018 wasn't the best, but it definitely wasn't the worst. I feel like in some ways the worst things that have happened in people's lives for some people happened this year. Mm. I can say that safely for mm. myself. But the good so outweighs that. Mm. So overall, I feel like we are mm. just so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, I think that's another way to reframe how we think about things. Mm. I'm all about reframing this year. No, that's beautiful. You're like Kylie Jenner. Uh, um, mm. Mm. 
great. <laughs> an interesting reflection. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm glad that you feel like that because it's been very mm. up and down while we've been living it. Mm. And the world has been very up and down as well. The world has been turbulent this year. Yeah. Goodness me. Yeah. And when you were doing that interview with Laura about social isolation, mm. I just kept thinking about, you know, the holidays are coming up and mm. it's such a difficult time for so many people. Yeah. And I think that also contributes to how we perceive this year to be. Yeah. Because the end of the year is very, very tough. It is tough. And I feel like it's made tougher because it's it's like all about Christmas. Mm. It's Firstly, it, there are so many people that don't celebrate Christmas. Mm. And because they celebrate other things or because they're culture or whatever, but also just people who don't believe in Christmas. Mm. The way to compound the isolation of those people... Um, yeah. Yeah. By making it seem like this big, you know, family event that everyone absolutely partakes in. Totally. When really for most of us and I you know, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus here, but for most Australians it's just an excuse to eat heaps and like get pierced by midday. <laughs> like honestly, it's <laughs> not <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> which is totally fine. But it's yeah. not as if it's some like sacred yeah. you know, we don't we don't need to have it held up in this regard where people feel lesser than or ashamed or something because they don't have mm. and also the the idea of gift um giving mm. you know and, and buying and what that means for people who don't have too much money yeah um and so there's this huge stigma and shame around that as well is quite cooked mm. for lack of a better term no it's true mm. but we also wanted to talk a little bit about how this is our last show in yes. the studio for this year it is um what a year Mm. If you've mm. been listening, thanks. Yeah. It's been an honour. It's been an absolute pleasure. Mm. And you're not getting rid of us, unfortunately, if if you thought that was coming up next. We're well, still going to be here. Yeah, I mean, you'll be getting rid of me for six months. For but six months, I know. Yeah. Mm. Yes. But yeah. it'll be good. I'll, I'll do it on location. Hopefully regional radio is coming up, yeah. Before we change the subject, though, we must not forget. Oh, yep, 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 yep. Can yep. you talk about this? So we talked about this last week. We had someone from Queer Space, um, which is part of Drum and Street Services, come in to talk to us about breakfast in the park um, that they're organising on Christmas morning. So that's happening on Tuesday, the 25th of December, on Christmas Day, um, from 9.30 a.m. at Flagstaff Gardens in the city. Um, so the poster says, on the morning of December 25th, the queers will take over Flagstaff Gardens Ooh. and we invite you to feast on breakfast foods, including vegan and halal options, featuring live music, gifts, face painting and games for the young and young at heart. Um, and it says, bring yourselves a picnic rug and some love to share. You can also call um, Ali on 0403-01. 9430 for directions, um, but also if you want to volunteer some time and flip some sausages or something, which, you know, I might flip be doing. Flip some sausages. Is that what you do in, in here? Flip sausages? Yeah. In Australia? I mean, I don't... Yeah. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so come join me and we shall flip some sausages. Yeah, queer up the park, baby. <laughs> All right. Should we... Yes, we will be right back. Tuesday breakfast on 3CR. Guatemala, I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. 
critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. Welcome back. On Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, we thought we'll play some Cardi B next to get the blood pumping and for you to start your day with some good music. Language warning, um, I think. For the entire song, so many times. Swear words. Yeah. Whatever. But, you know, end of 2018, it's time to party. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Looking for a gift for the lefty in your life this Christmas? 3CR has a range of publications, clothing, CDs, wine and other products available online or from the station. New items include the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary, which features a radical event in Australian history for each day of the year, as well as stories and images covering Indigenous Australian resistance, strikes, street art, convict escapes, creative direct action, blockades, protests and occupations. Also available is Fighting for Spaces, Fighting for Our Lives, a collection of essays, photographs and first-hand accounts about the squatting movements from around the world today. And On the Fly, an anthology which features dozens of stories, poems and songs originally produced by American hobos from the 1870s to the 1940s. Sale of these publications all help keep 3CR on air. For more information or to make a purchase, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. back on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio and we're joined on the line now by Mariki Onus, who is a Gunai and Gudijamara woman and co-founder of WAR, which is the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. Mariki, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. So yesterday at the ALP National Conference, Patrick Dodson announced that the Labour Party have agreed to a reconciliation action plan designed to give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, quote-unquote, a voice in the Parliament and in the Constitution. So in the lead up to the conference, it had already become really clear that the ALP are committed to this idea of constitutional recognition. Um, I wonder if we could firstly start, get a bit of a lay of the land. What is constitutional recognition? So um, there's a few different models to get there um, and a few different ways that it's been discussed. Um, But they're looking at, I think, a voice to parliament um, and to remove racism from within the Constitution. Um, and it's not really 100% clear on how that will look or work, but from what I can see, it appears that will be an advisory body to Parliament where they can take the report. Okay. And so you've recently said, um, well, you've recently been like bringing it up again, I guess, um, in this context. Um, and for a couple of years, it's been quite clear um, that a lot of Aboriginal people living in Victoria have rejected constitutional yeah. recognition. Um, could you maybe just tell us specifically who are we talking about when we're talking about the community that is rejecting it? Um, and can you tell us about why that is? So, first of all, um, there's been a few attempts at getting support on board from the Victorian community by the constitutional recognition mob. And um, most of the times uh, Aboriginal people have said no. But the most, the strongest, uh, sorry, the most significant time that we, we, sorry, the most significant event where we rejected constitutional recognition was in 2016 when the Victorian government held a statewide meeting, community meeting, with Aboriginal people um, to ask... They put it to the floor as to whether people are 
supported constitutional recognition. Uh, and this was attended by 500 people from around the state. And we, everybody said no, they don't support constitutional recognition. We want a sovereign treaty and an elders council. So that was the best of the treaty in Victoria. It's not a, it's a well, I mean, I, it's, argu- it's arguable that one can argue that it's not actually a sovereign treaty, but we don't know that yet. It's still, the jury's still out, so we're not sure. Um, there's been no elders council um, that Natalie Hutchins promised. There's no discussion about that. And our people said no to constitutional recognition. So what their argument will be is that that was con- that was recognised that we rejected, which is not true. Uh, we rejected constitutional recognition um, and that they're going to have um, another forum here, the Labor Party, with a community organisation um, here in Northgate. But there's been um, community backlash over it and there'll be a protest at the forum tomorrow. Okay. Um, and so... You've raised the point, um, yourself and, and people like Noyuka Gori um, have been talking about this in terms of, it's a self-determination issue, essentially, yeah. Um, yeah. and that there is elements of consent and, and a non-recognition of consent um, by the Victorian government and then also yeah. by the ALP in this. Um, can you sort of expand on that a bit in terms of um, how this is self-determination? Self, sorry, self-determination in action um, and what the element of consent is here. Sorry, what when you say this, what do you mean this? So in terms of your argument that, well, your argument, your, um, your standpoint that constitutional recognition is not um, what your community wants. Yeah. So, yeah. So then, yeah, the argument is that based on that, it's not, it's not self-determination. Um, and this was also didn't come from communities. This has come from... Um, I think it came out of the Howard era. Um, and it's been very much pushed by um, organisations who are very out of touch with Aboriginal people and white politicians. Mm. And this, I will note there's been Aboriginal people that have worked on it, but, I mean, that doesn't that's not self-determination. It's got to be a collective agreement from the people and it's got to be grassroots. It's got to be a response to, um, you know, in my view, I think that that self-determination can't work against community consent. So how can this be self-determination? Um, and since we said no in... Um, it's like forcing consent now. We said no in 2016. Now we have to say no again. Mm. How many times do we have to say no? Mm. Um, so that's a real big issue within our community. And that's not self-determination. They didn't ask what we wanted. We said what we wanted was a treaty and an elders council. They didn't come through with the elders council, um, and we're not sure about the treaty. I mean, a lot of people were really upset about how the treaty process is run, but I mean, I think there's still a chance for to get us to get it right. Yeah, yeah. It's um, and look, I mean, Andrews, the Andrews government made a lot of noises about that during the election campaign, so. Um, is that something you're feeling optimistic about in terms of Victoria moving forward? Uh, well, I don't really... I, I'm not, to be honest, my personal view is about the treaty. Mm. Um, I don't really think that's the silver bullet. Yeah. I think that community organising is um, and that we can't look to governments for the solutions within our community and they represent system violence against our people. It was my personal view on treaty. Um, but I think a lot of other Aboriginal people do have some sense of hope within the... Um, there is an element of people having hope within the treaty process. I've never seen a treaty that's worked, not in a Western country, not with Indigenous people. Oh, excuse me. I don't like morning interviews. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's my view on the treaty, but... Yeah. Um, I don't know. We'll see how that works. Um, Obviously, I support the voice of the community around that. Um, But, yeah. No, that's that's, you've answered the question. Um, 
And so I guess in that context, when we are talking about, um, you know, the colonial legal system and ongoing colonization that's happening, um, even if treaty is being negotiated, there is really nothing more important, obviously, than supporting self-determination and, as you say, grassroots movements. Yeah. So um, how can our listeners support Aboriginal self-determination movements such as war um, in Victoria and, I guess, around the country? How can our listeners? Um, our listeners. I think, obviously, educate yourself on who that is um, and give money when, you know, when small community organisations reach out and... Um, do a fundraiser or something like that, get behind us and support us in that work. Um, and what else? I mean, support the work that grassroots organisations are doing. Yeah. Not, not, you know, not out of touch organisations who don't have very little to do with community on the ground. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Mariki. I'm sorry Thanks. about the uh, the morning interview thing. We'll do it in the <laughs> evening next time. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Thanks. Have a I good day. A slow. Thank you. Bye. That was Mariki Onus, uh, founder of War, the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. Um, and that brings us just about to the end of today's program. Thanks to all of our guests this morning for joining us. Thanks to you listeners for listening mm. throughout the year. And thanks to you, Lauren, for introducing oh. me to 3CR. Oh, I just feel like I have to make a public declaration of love. You would have found it on your own. You were meant to end up here. I strongly believe that. Mm, stop it. I know we're going to cry. Um, I do just want to plug, before we get off air, Accent mm. of Women will be up next. And I had a chat with Giselle from Accent this morning. Um, and so for summer programming, they are going to replay her fascism series, which mm. is going to be really interesting. This week and next week is examining um, the rise of neo-fascism in Germany. Mm. And then the following two weeks is Brazil, which is really timely. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then after that, it will be Italy. So that's Amazing. a six-week block. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you missed it during the year, I can highly recommend I haven't actually listened to the Brazilian ones, but the others are awesome. So mm. tune in, stay tuned, and we'll be back in 2019. Oh, my God. Oh. Have beautiful holidays for everybody who's taking them. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.